The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. I've got some uh, questions lined up for you, obviously. This is the Q&A show. Jim's joining me again from, uh, hmm, oh, Ohio, Loveland, Ohio, I bet. So uh, I was having trouble keeping track of his many travels uh, here. But yes, Loveland, Ohio. We'll have to see if he uh, visited the castle that I recommended uh, the last time we were on the show. And I noticed that there was, in fact, a castle there in Loveland, Ohio. But uh, I'm sure we'll hear all about it, Uh, although we've got a fairly tight window of opportunity to record today, so maybe we won't get into the whole castle story. So, Jim, have you at least located the castle? (laughs) I did not locate, nor have I visited said castle. I will uh, put that on my to-do list. Today was spent pretty much stuck in the Airbnb. I had my Ed Slot training today. It's remote this, uh, this session. And uh, they will not be doing remote anymore, they said, unless we get into lockdowns again with COVID. But uh, it worked out good for me because I'm here in Ohio, so it allowed me to attend. And then tomorrow, same thing. I'll be locked in Ed's slot, and then I'm driving down to Lexington, Kentucky, uh, so I can uh, go hiking Saturday morning uh, in Berea, Kentucky. So I will be too busy to see the castle until next week. Uh, Well, we'll, we look forward to hearing when, I, I will take a photo it. of me. I will, I will at least track down this castle um, and try to at least get a selfie of me in front of the castle. How's that? Perfect. That sounds great. But uh, no, I have not had a chance to track said castle down. Okay. I know we're short on time, so we'll forgo a little bit of the normal banter that Chris and I do for catching up. But literally, this is sometimes the only opportunity Chris and I have to catch up because I'm not in the office and... I haven't been communicating very heavily with the office at all times. And gosh, I really haven't chatted with you since last week. So I hope everything's going well, Chris. Uh, so far, so good. Weather's quite nice out here again. We, we got past that cold spell and things seem to be fairly smooth at the office. So I think we're good to go. Does everybody miss me? Oh, yes. Desperately. <laughs> I'm sure. You got, did you even know I was gone? 
But uh, I'm glad, glad to hear y'all are missing me and, and patiently <laughs> waiting with bated breath for, for my eventual return in a couple more weeks. Mm. Okay. Um, so we have our social security question. We have an Irma question. We have an annuity question, a new question of the week, and, and all of that other stuff. So let's jump into, I guess we will do the social security question first, like we normally do, Chris. You don't okay. want to break tradition. Why start now? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let me see if I can find said social security question. Okay. Did he give a hint? Yes, he did give a hint. Mm. State question to stump Chris. I'm going to say you'll get this because I would wager you have consumed quite a few Krispy Kreme donuts. Could be wrong. But he lives in the state. He lives in the state where the first Krispy Kreme donut shop was opened. Now, I didn't realize it was in 1937. 1937. You're kidding. Is that old? I had no idea. I had no idea it was that old either. 1937. In fact, I've probably consumed less than a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts in my life. Just for the record, since we don't have Krispy Kreme here in northern Colorado. Although I heard rumors they're supposed to put one in, so maybe that will change and I'll get caught up. But you can uh, get them in some convenience stores. Yeah, along no, way. that's 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 a waste. That's not that's not the same. They're only good when they're fresh, oh. in my opinion. I mean, they're they're good, but they're just normal when they're not fresh. When they're fresh, it's uh, extra good. So I'm more of a Lamar's guy personally, just so for the record. But um, boy, where were they started? I am going, it just feels like something that might've come out of Texas or somewhere like that. So I'm going to go with Texas. Texas negative. Again, we don't vet these for accuracy folks, Mm. but according to this person, they were started in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hmm. I learned something new every day. There's my one thing for the day. That's uh, awesome. I was also shocked about the 1937. That just seems... Wow, it took a while to get throughout the country, but then uh, there are most places, apparently, except northern Colorado. So, Okay, this is technically a new question of the week, even though it's not going to be the new question of the week. The reason I jumped it to the top of the line, um, it involves Social Security, but it also involves, sadly, a diagnosis with a very short life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to try to answer this question sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it begins, I'm writing on behalf of a friend, we will call him George, quote-unquote George, who turned 62 earlier this year. He had planned to retire this fall. Tragically, he was diagnosed with an incurable terminal disease a month after his birthday. Most people with his disease will not live more than two years after diagnosis. So that, folks is very sad. And and, uh, Chris and I do want to extend our sympathies to George, Uh, even though George isn't the one writing this question. Hopefully his friend uh, from North Carolina will uh, relay Chris's answer to him. But it also shows, folks, part of my reasoning on why I came up with the fun number approach to retirement planning and why we encourage people to not limit spending on fun to some quote-unquote safe withdrawal rate. You don't know how long your go-go phase is going to last. There are people, they've written to us on this podcast well into their 70s. I think one recently was in their early 80s and still doing things. 
But for all of those people, we can show you just as many, if not more, who never got to that phase. We're entering the time in our life, the last third of our life. You hit 60, you're in the last third of your life. Like it or not, that's the truth. And we don't know how long that third is going to last. It doesn't mean it's going to last to 90. Could last to 95. Could last to 62. We just don't know. And it's part of the reason I wanted to come up with a process that allows people to feel comfortable spending their fund money, identifying what it is, and rather than stretching it out for your whole life, spend a hell of a lot of it early in retirement. And that's apparently what this gentleman named George is going to try to do, even though he probably has two years or so to live, according to the person who wrote this email. So he continues, George and his wife, who is 57 and not working, are going to make the most of the time he has left while he is able to travel and spend time with family. So they're going to supercharge their go-go phase. Hopefully they crunched the numbers. Hopefully they have a good idea what Georgette, because I don't know her name, the spouse of George, is going to need at his passing. Hopefully they can identify what they truly could spend on fun. And they try to do it while George still has the health, inclination, desire, and ability. He may have a short life expectancy, but hopefully a good portion of that can be spent still doing things. You just want to be careful they don't overspend and leave his spouse struggling, but that they don't underspend and leave the spouse wishing they had done a little bit more wanting those memories. People pass. Memories can continue. So anyways, Chris, that's kind of why I jumped this to the top of the list. Mm -hmm. So this is their question, folks. George told me he was able to qualify for disability through Social Security. So do you want to just pause, Chris? And Well, I'll pause. Explain that special rule that allows people to get disability quite quickly, because normally disability takes mm -hmm. a long time and sometimes involves attorneys. Mm -hmm. But sadly, if you have a disease that falls into certain categories, as Chris will explain, and I hope I'm not throwing you under the bus on this, but as Chris will explain, you can get disability quite quickly. Well, you kind of covered it by throwing it to me. There's a list. There's literally a list of certain diagnoses that if you have one, you present that to Social Security. They immediately approve you for Social Security disability. And it's meant to help those who are terminally ill that have a very short life expectancy and not put them through the normal jumping, jumping through hoops process of applying for and then ultimately being approved for Social Security disability. In many cases, people wouldn't live long enough to get through the process. So they have created a list and um, I don't have it at my fingertips here because uh, this isn't something that comes up very frequently. But uh, uh, if you feel you might be in that category, you would want to look for that list. And that's likely what happened in this case. If, if that's truly uh, that people just usually don't live more than two years after this disease that he was diagnosed with would likely be on that list. And he probably collected disability almost immediately after sending that information into Social Security. 
Okay. So the writer continues. George told me he was able to qualify for disability, and he is going to collect monthly payments until he reaches 67, when his full retirement age would then start and his disability will end. Although we all hope and pray he will reach that age in this event, the odds are against him. What happens to his spouse and her ability to collect both spousal and survivor benefits? George has tried to explain to me that she will be able to collect spousal support as early as age 60. I think there's a little confusion there, Chris. You can clear up in a minute. That does not align with my understanding of spousal support unless she gets some type of reduced value. And I really don't know what she would need to do to collect his full retirement age amount for the survivor benefit. Can she qualify for spousal support based on George receiving disability now? Does she need to wait until she's 67, which is her full retirement age, to claim a survivor benefit if he passes away? Would the survivor benefit be based on what George would have been excuse me, based on what George's age would have been at her full retirement age. Thanks for taking the time to consider this question. Can you help George's friend from North Carolina? I think I can just clarify a few things. Uh, First, um, when he mentions that Uh, the wife might be able to collect a a spousal support as early as age 60. Let's make a clear distinction between spousal benefits, which are available to her while he is alive, and survivor benefits, which are available after he passes. Those you might call spousal support, but we need to be careful in the wording because they actually act very differently. Spousal benefits are only available to you once you reach 62. So if he's still alive when she reaches 62, she could um, uh, possibly, I'm not saying she would want to necessarily without looking into all the options, but may very well want to claim a spousal benefit at the time she turns 62. The age 60 reference, when that becomes available, what that refers to is survivor benefits. So this would only be if he uh, passes away, she would be able to claim a survivor benefit as young as age 60, uh, although it would be a reduced benefit, which is kind of touching on some of the other things that he is asking. So he's collecting disability right now, If he lives long enough to reach his full retirement age, that disability payment will turn into his retirement age benefit, his full retirement age benefit. Um, So he's technically not receiving his retirement benefit yet. However, when you're claiming disability, if your spouse becomes of age to claim a spousal benefit, they can claim a spousal benefit while you're collecting uh, disability. So um, that you know, hopefully he's alive long enough for that to happen, but that's going to be five years from now, um, which actually would kind of coincide with him turning 67 anyway. So there might, there might not be a time he didn't give me months of the year they were born, but, uh, it'd be really close to when he turns his full retirement age and his retirement benefit then would take over for the disability benefit. But if he's still alive, when she turns 60, she won't be eligible for any sort of benefit quite yet. 
But at 62, hopefully he is, a spousal benefit would become available. The survivor benefit um, is available to her once he passes, but depending on when she claims, she may or may not get the full survivor benefit. So the survivor benefit will be equal to whatever he was either collecting as a retirement benefit or what he could have collected had he claimed his retirement benefit at the time. And you can look at your, your current survivor benefit on your social security statement if you want to look up and see what it, uh, what it appears to be. And that gives you an idea. While you're still working, if you're much younger than full retirement age, that number might be you know a bit different than your actual full retirement age benefit. But the closer you get to that age, the, the closer those estimates actually become. And um, let's say, for instance, he does pass away and she's only 60 years old. So that would just be a, f- a few years from now, which sounds like it's possible with this diagnosis. Um, so he hadn't claimed his survivor benefit yet, but she would technically be eligible to receive his survivor benefit and could receive 100% of his full retirement age benefit if, and this is the big if, if she were to not claim at 60, but were to claim at her own full retirement age of 67. So that's the conundrum. If he passes quite early, yes, she is eligible for a survivor benefit, but not the full amount, which for longevity protection, she might want to wait until she can get the full amount, but that wouldn't require her waiting to claim it until she turned 67 years old. If she claimed it at 60, it would be reduced by, under current law, 28.5%. So it's not as severe of a reduction as claiming your own retirement benefit early, but there is a reduction, again, 28.5%. And that's then just you know prorated over that seven years. So if you were to claim uh, three and a half years in, so it's 63 and a half, your reduction would be half of that 28.5% or 14 and a quarter percent. So when she claims it is what will determine if she gets 100% of it or not. The only way for her to get 100% is to actually wait until she's full retirement age herself. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Some of this won't be clear as to what she should do until the event happens. I'd say the first trigger point for her would be if she turns 62 and he's alive. At that point, serious consideration should be put into her claiming a a spousal benefit. And the reason why claiming it that early, even though it will be reduced, is likely a good idea. And I'm saying likely because there's possible variables here that we don't know that could change this. But it's likely because she's only going to be collecting that spousal benefit for a short time because he's going to pass away. If he's lucky enough even to make it to her turning 62, It sounds like it's not likely he would live much longer than that. So they're going to want to collect as much of that spousal benefit as possible, even though it's reduced, at least it's something. Then the survivor benefit will kick on. And if she did claim that spousal benefit early at 62, the the choice to do that does not undermine her ability to get full survivor benefits. Those are two independent decisions. And that's confusing for a lot of people. They hear about, you know, claiming their spousal early, which then ultimately, or claiming their own early, which then affects their spousal later and all these kind of 
interwoven reductions that can affect each other. But the claiming on survivor benefits is completely independent of the claiming of your own and your spousal benefits. So I, th- I think I touched on all of his questions. Um, I jotted notes. I would just want to mention, and mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe you do. I'm trying to figure out the age in my mm-hmm. head. She might have a different um, full retirement age for survivor benefits. No, I, I, that was one of the things as you were reading through there, I jotted down. And her full retirement age is 67 for both. Okay. Based okay. on the age that they shared in the email. Okay, that's what I wasn't sure because yeah. I know for some people they have a different mm-hmm. age. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I, I think right, well, I think she's right at the cusp of that, but I think she happens to be. If it's not sixty-seven, then her full retirement age for survivor would be sixty-six and ten months. But I'm pretty, I'm ninety percent sure she's at sixty-seven. Perfect. Well, hopefully this George from North Carolina can relay it to his friend George from I would assume North Carolina as well. And uh, we wish uh, your friend all the best listener. Yes, for sure. And this just general rule, when there's something like this happening, make sure you have all your ducks in a row before you go into Social Security so that they don't do something uh, that that you're wanting to avoid as far as claiming one versus another, those types of things. So before you go in and claim, I would say, of any of these benefits, I would recommend um, having them talk to someone who would, could look at their specific situation and make sure what they're about to go do at Social Security makes sense for them. Yeah, and don't forget, there was also a study <clears throat> that came out maybe, I think it was more than a year ago now, but they found that the, a lot, I won't say the majority, but a lot of uh, widow widowers were collecting less than they were entitled to. That that was an area where Social Security made the biggest mistakes. Yeah, for some reason, it's that situation that's causing the most underpayment mistakes at Social Security. So there are, right now as we speak, hundreds of thousands of widows out there in particular, because statistically women outlive men, that are collecting less than they're owed and no one's doing anything about it. That's that's the bad news. Right. That's where a lot of the mistakes happen. So as Chris is correct, get your ducks in a row, listener. Yep. Make sure you have everything set, and then you can help your friend and his uh, surviving spouse um, if, if your friend passes. Right. Okay. Next question will be an IRMA, income-related monthly adjusted amount, or I-R-M-A-A. So we call it IRMA. Let's see if he gives a hint. He does not. Oh, wait a minute. He does. But don't give the answer. I think I know the answer. I have no idea, but I think I know the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, He's from the Eureka State. I think it's California, but I have no idea. I think so. That's the Golden State. I think the the Eureka State is Oregon for some reason. Oh, we have to Google it now, so Google it quick. Eureka State. Okay, I'll Google it real quick. Well, you have to Google it now. Uh, Eureka State is, well, there is a Eureka, California, but is that the Eureka State? Maybe you're right. Maybe it is California, which would make sense with the gold rush and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I Uh, thought it was California. Oh, the expression is also the state motto of California. There you go. There you go. I am correct, folks. Ding, 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 ding for me. I get a star on my forehead. I don't know why I thought it was Oregon for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. 
Okay. Anyways, Irma question okay. from the Eureka State. Love the show and look forward to listening to every new one during my long walks. Short version of my question. Do Irma premiums apply if Medicare has been suspended? Long version of my question. I'm looking to convert traditional IRA to Roth after Medicare enrollment. I'm wondering about picking up some employment where health insurance is offered. And if I accept that insurance and suspend Medicare and start converting an IRA to a Roth. This will likely cause my income to cross normal IRMA thresholds. And I'm wondering if IRMA would still apply to me two years later, of course. So if I stop working two years after the conversion is done and have no IRMA. I'm not quite sure. I think I understand what he's asking. Hopefully you do. I think there could be two interpretations, but I can answer both. So um, first of all, the short version was making me think one thing. So let me tackle that. Do the IRMA premiums apply if Medicare has been suspended? No, because you're not paying the premiums and IRMA is an adjustment to those premiums. It's not really a separate standalone charge. It's literally them choosing to charge you a different premium. So if you're not enrolled in Medicare, you're not paying IRMA. So there's the short answer to that short first question. His other question, which sounds like an interesting strategy, where he's going to go back to work somewhere that has a qualified medical plan at work that would allow him to suspend uh, his Medicare coverage in order to be in this other plan instead, which you'd want to make sure it was qualified because otherwise if you opt out of Medicare without that qualification, you're going to pay a 10% lifetime penalty on your premiums for Medicare for every year that you're on it for the rest of your life once you go back on to Medicare. So if you were out for two years, for instance, and, and stopped participating in Medicare and you didn't have a plan that qualified you to do so, you would, uh, when you signed back up two years later, you'd pay 20% higher premiums for the rest of your life. That's the penalty for, for not signing up when you're eligible. But in this case, assuming it's a qualified plan at his work where he could opt out of Medicare, I see uh, every reason to expect him to be able to convert a lot uh, do whatever, earn a lot, you know, because that's essentially how conversions are going to be reported is ordinary income on your tax return, which is going to raise your, your modified adjusted gross income for IRMA determination purposes. But in his case, this technique, he's not simply opting out or suspending Medicare. He's working during this time. So when he stops working after this strategy of his, he's going to have a life-changing event as uh, that would qualify him to request they use not the two years prior Maggie for his Irma, which would be the high you know, earnings years while he's doing these conversions and working part-time, I assume, uh, but instead use the current Maggie at the time, which will be post-conversions and post-work. And as he mentioned, he would at that time be out of Irma. So I think this could potentially work. I'd want to hear all the details about it to make sure there's not something that would derail this. But this is a, I mean, there's a sacrifice he's making. He's basically unretiring, going back to work 
to pull this off. Not many people would be willing to do that, but uh, if Irma is that big of concern for you, or maybe you're going back to work and do something you love to do, maybe this would uh, be a strategy for him to consider. Okay, perfect, perfect. Okay, now we're going to get into a annuity question, which kind of ties into Social Security. We kind of changed this around recently from two Social Security questions to one Social Security, one Irma, and one annuity. Um, this one is from... Oh, interesting. His hint... I may be Jim's neighbor soon. Hmm. Must be from Ohio, right? Or Kentucky. Not only that, he's from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I just oh. happen to be here. Yeah. So um, I may have to reach out to him. But, uh, yeah, he is uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, folks. And I, well, I'm not in Cincinnati. I'm in Loveland, about 30 minutes uh, northeast of uh, Cincinnati. But he says, hint, I may be Jim's neighbor soon. I am in Cincinnati, Ohio. I can certainly point you anywhere you want to know about. Maybe he knows about the castle. I'm sure he must. It's a castle. (laughs) Who wouldn't know about a local castle? I will have to reach out to him, let him know. Um, Okay, so he has an annuity question, folks. I kind of like this question. It's probably one that may apply to a lot of listeners. I don't know, or it may apply to people you know, listeners. So let's hope the the advice uh, helps. It says, my question is from the much younger me. And I'm wondering where you were when I probably got snookered in 1997. He said, well, my wife got snookered, but I was right there. He goes on, folks. Until listening to you, and this email came in in August, so I'm guessing he was listening to June, which was National Annuity Awareness Month, and we answered a bunch of annuity questions, and we talked about annuities a lot. So he said, until listening to you, I had no clue an annuity could also be an IRA. Hmm. So let's pause there. An annuity is just a product Folks, it's an insurance product that's often confused with an investment, especially a variable annuity, which he happens to have. And a variable annuity simply allows the annuity owner to invest the excess premiums into investments, hence it's called a variable annuity, as opposed to a fixed annuity, which pretty much just pays a fixed amount of interest, usually stated every year. So he has, or his wife has, a variable annuity. But the annuity is just a product. The IRA is a wrapper. You can have an annuity inside an IRA. The IRA can go out and buy the annuity. That is not a problem. Well, he apparently didn't know that until listening to us. And he now realizes his wife has an annuity that's also an IRA. Hmm. And it's so a variable can, one, you said. And a variable annuity, yes. Okay. So he says, hence, my wife has what I always thought was a poor-performing IRA. But in fact, it's a poor-performing annuity inside an IRA that someone talked us into transferring a company 401k into a long time ago. Remember, he said 1997. Mm -hmm. That is, in the annuity world, 
a very long time ago, folks. Mm, sure. So he continues. I know who the annuity is with, and he names the company, but I will not. I know who the annuity is with and the value as we do get statements. But I have no clue on what it would be worth if we annuitize it. How do I find this out? Should I call the insurance company? Or is it in the prospectus, which I could download online? I also learned today that the maturity date is still well into the future, 2035. And my wife is just turning 58. So I still have time to finish all my learning. I know it's a variable annuity because I see the funds it's invested in. I'll pause there. He's calling them funds as if they're mutual funds. They probably have names very, very similar to mutual funds. And they're probably offered by the same firms that offer mutual funds. But technically speaking, inside a variable annuity, they are not mutual funds. They uh, are, uh, gosh, now I just got a blank mind. They are called sub accounts. Sub accounts. Thank you. Goodness. They are called sub-accounts. They're going to look like a mutual fund, talk like a mutual fund, act like a mutual fund, but they're not. They're technically called sub-accounts. And it usually has to do with the fees. The fees of a sub-account will generally be higher than the fees of the retail mutual fund version. And the reason is the sub-accounts are what he's calling funds inside a variable annuity generally not all of them but most of them will share management fees with the insurance company kind of pay to play the insurance company is getting some of the fund management fees in return to allowing those sub-accounts to be inside their annuity. So again, I just wanted to clarify, they're not mutual funds, they're technically sub, not technically, they're called sub accounts. So he, he does continue, he says, I know it's a variable annuity because I see the funds or sub accounts, but I don't see any of the fees. At this point, I will finish my education and enjoy the fruits of my time and my research continues. Thanks. I enjoy the podcast. He says, by the way, I got to your podcast by listening to Andy Penko. Hmm. So a little shout out to Andy. Thank you very much. I know Andy. Mm -hmm. I would consider him a colleague and a friend. Mm -hmm. um, he has his own podcast. He's on hiatus from his podcast for a little while, folks. But uh, Andy is a, a good guy. Okay. A couple of things I want to point out to anybody who has an annuity and doesn't really know what it is. Don't hesitate to call the insurance company. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can find the person who sold it to you in 97. Uh, that's 25 mm -hmm. years ago, 26, 26. years ago. Yeah. He or she may be retired. I don't know. If they're not, I can all but guarantee you they probably forgot the features of that annuity <laughs> because that annuity is probably not offered anymore. Most annuities have a short shelf life, if you will. And the insurance company, just like cars, although cars models kind of stay a lot longer, 
but manufacturers come out with different models. Insurance companies come out with different annuities and they might offer them for a few months to maybe a couple of years. Then they don't offer them anymore. If you have one, you get to keep it because it is a contractual obligation. It's a one-way contract. The insurance company has to honor everything, but it is a contractual obligation by the insurance company. Normally, when they come out with a new model, for lack of a better word, uh, they'll call it something different, or they might call it the the, uh, ABC growth variable annuity. And then it might come out the ABC growth variable annuity version two. Uh, So they might come out with something as simple as that. What they're doing is they generally are changing the contract. They're changing the parameters of the contract, either more beneficial to them or more beneficial to you or adding features or removing features. So they have to come out with an actually new annuity. Why am I going into that little rabbit hole? He has a very old annuity. It may have some unique features that you can't get anymore. Mm -hmm. And even though he says he's quote unquote snookered into it, It might have some things that make it worth keeping. However, the cynic in me also is saying, hmm, he really bought that annuity before the really strong living benefits were taking off. So I'm thinking in my head, why was he told or his wife was told to buy an annuity inside an IRA? We spoke about this in the past, that a lot of advisors despise that. I take that with a jaundiced eye. There are times when you would want an annuity inside an IRA. And that generally is because it has very good income benefits. Because after all, folks, whether you have a fixed annuity or a variable annuity, Ultimately, the annuity is designed to pay a lifetime stream of income. A lot of variable annuities from the 1990s didn't have what the industry calls living benefits, which are the ability to get income from it without being forced to annuitize. Mm -hmm. Annuitization is a verb. What does it mean, Chris? Well, it means you give up access to the money inside there and essentially say, here, insurance company, you can have this money. Instead, I want you to replace that with a promise to me to pay me a lifetime stream of income. Um, Pre-annuitization, the dollars that are in there are generally available to you in one way or another to remove, albeit possibly with fees or restrictions attached to it. Right. And those living benefits really took off in the 2000s. His annuity was purchased around the time when death benefits were the claim to fame on an annuity. So I'm thinking he might have some type of enhanced death benefit or his wife might have some type of enhanced death benefit with this annuity. But I don't know if it has a income benefit. Uh, to be able to take money out of the annuity without having to annuitize it. Those are called living benefits. They're very, very popular now, and they started taking off in the early 2000s, and the heyday was 2006, 7, 8, and 9. 
that period of time, living benefits, it was, it was like a, an arms race. The insurance companies were coming out with annuities with better and better and better living benefits that were making Chris and I go, oh, my God, I even bought one. And I admitted on this podcast, I think I bought mine in 08 or 09, a very long time ago, not as long ago as 1997. But the living benefit was just too good for even me to pass up. I don't use them anymore because I don't think the living benefits are worth it anymore. So my gut is telling me, listener, your wife has an annuity without a living benefit. That does not mean it cannot be annuitized and turned into income. The unfortunate thing is it's going to if it doesn't have a living benefit, it's going to be very difficult for you and your wife to find out what her annuitization benefit is, because normally they will not figure it out for you until you call them and say, I want to annuitize it. But if you do get a hold of them on the phone, they might be willing to show you what you could get today. And they're not going to give it to you over the phone. They're going to have to submit it internally, and it'll take a while, a couple of weeks, and you might be able to get a quote of what you would get today. They most likely also list in their prospectus a formula that you could use, especially if you're a Vanguardian do-it-yourself or a VG type person. They will list, because they have to, the formula of the annuitization benefit. And you might be able to determine what you could get as an income benefit if you annuitized. But you and your wife should first determine a few things. I always ask somebody with an annuity, what'd you buy it for? Sounds to me like she was sold something. She was sold a bill of goods. But see if she remembers why she bought it. Gee, I bought it because it had a phenomenal death benefit. Maybe I'm wrong and it does have a living benefit. And it has a phenomenal living benefit. Or maybe she truly was snookered, as you put it. And she owns really an expensive annuity that doesn't do much of anything. So once you can determine why she bought it, try to determine if that reason still applies today and try to determine if you need additional secure income. If you do, then yes, trying to ascertain what the annuitization benefit of that annuity is would be beneficial. I do know back in 97, they were using different mortality tables than they use today. Mm Today, people are living longer, and most insurance companies updated their mortality tables to be less favorable on annuitization. So an older annuity might have a good annuitization benefit, and it might be worth keeping that annuity for that income benefit. But again, I caution you, it's going to be really hard to figure out what she's going to get at various ages in the future. They generally will only tell you what you would get at your age now. And not every company will tell you unless you actually submit annuitization paperwork. It can get truly frustrating. That's why you might have to resort to the prospectus, find the area on annuitization, read the formula, and try to figure it out. But I would start by getting the insurance company on the phone and you can try it's it's a broker sold annuity 
So on your statement, there should be listed the name of whoever has been assigned this annuity. You might want to try reaching out to them as well and saying, hey, can you help me? Now, if you do, be very careful about them trying to sell you another annuity. You bought this annuity 25 years ago. This annuity isn't paying them anything now. Getting you in a new annuity will start paying them some money again. And they might argue, gee, you have no living benefit. Why don't you buy this fancy-dancy new annuity over here with a living benefit? Or they might make some other argument. Gee, you don't have these investments in your variable annuity. Why don't you buy this fancy-dancy new annuity with these investments? Be very careful on moving into a new annuity until you determine if you need one. But back to some of the things you can do on your own. Call up the insurance company and ask them specifically, what type of living benefits, if any, do you have? They'll know what living benefits mean, and they'll tell you, and they'll tell you how it works. Then ask them, what, if any, type of death benefit do you have? You might have a pretty good death benefit. Some older death benefits grew at a certain amount, and maybe your death benefit amount is far greater than what the account balance is. We call that, quote-unquote, in the money. You have a death benefit substantially higher than the account balance. Might be worth keeping it for the death benefit. I don't know. But I'm, again, thinking a 1997 annuity most likely had some type of enhanced death benefit, and that was the hook the agent was using to convince you to move a 401k into an IRA and buying this variable annuity. But then ask them point blank, what are the fees? And there's going to be a couple of fees you're going to want to ask them about. First, what is the M&E fee? M as in mortality, E as in expense. Mortality and expense fee. I'm going to guess on an annuity sold by a broker in the 90s, it's probably about 1.2 to 1.8. I don't know if I'm accurate or not, but somewhere around there. I wouldn't be surprised. You want to know what the M&E fee is because that comes out every year. If it has a living benefit or if it has a death benefit, what is the fee for those benefits? They're generally not for free. So you want to know what that fee is. When it comes to the fee on a living benefit or a death benefit, you're also going to want to ask them, what balance is that fee being assessed on? Oftentimes, they might tell you, gee, the death benefit fee is 25 basis points or one quarter of 1%, folks. They'll talk to this person in basis points, but a basis point, one basis point is one one hundredth of, of a percent. So 100 basis points is 1%. So 25 basis points would be one quarter of 1%. If they tell you, gee, the death benefit is 25 basis points, ask them, what is that being assessed on? The account balance, which might be lower than the death benefit balance, which might be higher. Same thing with a living benefit. Living benefits often come with annuities that have, quote-unquote, pretend accounts. And we'll do a whole show later on living benefits. 
but you could have a pretend account substantially higher than your account. And they might be assessing the living benefit fee on that much, much higher pretend account. So if they just tell you, oh, the living benefit and generally living benefits have fees of about three quarters of a percent all the way up to one and a half percent. So they're quite high, but they assess them usually on what I call the pretend account or the insurance industry calls the quote unquote income base. So if you have an income base worth 200,000, but an account balance worth 150,000 and they're charging 1% on 200,000, that's more than 1% of your account balance because that's where they take the money from is your account balance. So when it comes to the fees on the industry calls them riders, whether it's a living benefit rider or a death benefit rider, not only do you want to know the fee listener, you want to ask them what balance is that being assessed on. Then being a variable annuity, you are going to have fees on the investments. Now that you can find in the prospectus. And if you download the prospectus and look up your investments or sub-accounts that you have your money in, they will tell you what those fees are. They will most likely be anywhere from about three quarters of a percent up to two percent. And if you add up all your fees on a broker sold variable annuity, would not surprise me if you're paying around 2.8 to 3.5 percent per year on that annuity. That's a steep cost and you've been paying it for 25 years. So it brings me to my final thing. I don't know if this annuity is going to be worth keeping. I cannot make that determination at all. You're not a client. I don't know what you have. I don't know what your needs are. But you should really take it seriously because I don't know how much money is in it. You don't indicate it. But you could be paying thousands and thousands of dollars every year in a fee for a product that could be well worth it or a product that is not worth it at all, and you truly should look at getting out. Again, I can't answer it, and I'm not telling you to to close it, but I am telling you, you could be paying thousands of dollars a year, so you really need to kind of figure out what you have, and the best way, talk right to the insurance company about the fees, the benefits, what it does, what it pays, but if it has no living benefits, if it has just standard but expensive investments, if it has a death benefit but is nothing phenomenal, you might want to think twice on keeping it. But if it has a great death benefit or stupendous investments, maybe you want to keep it. But you really should get a handle of it and not keep paying thousands of dollars for something that was bought in 97 and you don't quite know what you have anything else you want to add pete uh chris i just thought my name's chris but uh (laughs) no i think that's all good sage advice on on this um look into it don't just keep paying those darn fees unless there's a good reason to do it that's that's where they get you uh, a lot of times is once people have some of these things they just kind of leave them be set them and it's just like a leech uh, just is sucking the account dry with all these fees uh, which is one of the things that contributes to he mentioned he thought it was a poor performing IRA 
the fees alone could be suppressing the performance of, of it and explain it completely why it's quote poor performing over the past 25, 26 years compared to other IRAs maybe similarly invested that he has or she exactly, has. Exactly, so. Chris. You make an excellent mm-hmm. point because if you are paying, say, 2.8 to mm-hmm. 3.5, let's just call it 3. If you are paying or your wife is paying about 3% in annual fees, even if your sub-accounts have been averaging 6 or 7% a year for the last 25 years, there was a couple of bear markets in that 25-year period, even if you average 7 Six, seven, eight percent. If you're giving up three percent, you're giving up thirty to fifty percent of your annual return. That's massive. Yep. I'll be the first to tell you the annuity that I own. If you look at its performance, it sucks. I didn't buy it for the performance. I could care less. I bought it for an income benefit that I knew, or at least I thought at the time, was really good. And it still is, in my opinion, good. They don't offer it anymore. They stopped offering it about nine months after I bought it. The quote-unquote performance of that annuity, though, is terrible. My fees, over 3%. I don't know the exact amount. I think it's about 3-3. Crazy, crazy-ass amount. But again, I bought it for the income benefits. I fully know what I have. I fully know what it does. I fully know the cost, even though I can't remember off the top of my head if it's 3-2 or 3-3. I did not buy it as an investment. I don't look at it and say, wow, it hasn't done much. And it hasn't. If you look at my annualized return since I bought it in 08 or 09, I'm going to tell you it's probably less than 3%. But the income benefit is what I bought it for. And the income benefit is the only reason I'm keeping it but I understand it. I don't know what you have. And I don't think you know what you have and you need to find out. Mm -hmm. You just have to be careful if you go to the agent named on it that they don't try to sell you another damn annuity. But beforehand, you should try to figure out if you guys are going to even need an annuity because that might help answer the question on if you should keep this one or consider another one or just get out of annuities totally. Yep. Yep, that sounds good. Thanks for kind of dissecting dissecting it for him. Yep. All righty. Well, that that was a good question I thought on on the annuity. Hopefully people learned from that. Now we're going to get Chris into a question that seems to rear its ugly head every now and then. This is an older question. It came in a while. Whoa, God, real long time ago, February 8th of 2023. So this well, is going back in the, the time zone for sure. I, I don't know. I think if we're pulling them from the, the current year. We're doing better than we have in years past because sometimes we were pulling stuff up two years ago. So. True. True. I will I will give that. Now, this guy's probably going to wonder, oh, my gosh, my question from February. Yeah. All righty. So anyways, uh, apparently uh, you at one point, Chris, said on February 4th, because he begins, hi, Jim and Chris. Oh, I wonder if he gives a hint. We didn't do hints back. Mm. Oh, we did do hints back I was then. I say that's about when we started. Ah, he gave a hint. All right. Um, oh, you'll nail this one. Good. Um, oh, wow. I didn't realize. You, okay. Yeah, you'll definitely nail this. I am from the state, shown mm-hmm. below, which you can't see, but I can, mm-hmm. which just happens to be the birthplace of our 16th president. We've had this before, and both you and I got it wrong. And in fact, somebody wrote to me and says, really, Jim, you didn't know blank was born in blank? 
And I felt like writing back, no, I didn't. We had this one before. Okay, but who's the 16th president? Is that part of the right. quiz? Because well, I think he was being make, trying to make this a little more uh, difficult. Well, Abraham Lincoln. Well, that's what I was going to be my guess, but yeah. So, um, well, if I got it wrong, then it can't be Illinois because that's no. yeah. So it's wasn't it? Uh, oh, it's vaguely. Um, hmm. Come on, ding 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 yeah, ding ding ding. Wasn't it something strange like Tennessee or Kentucky or something? Kentucky. Yeah. Kentucky. So he's from the the writer of yeah. this is from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. I will I'll actually be driving through Louisville on Sunday the twelfth on my way uh, home to Colorado because I'm going to be hiking next to Big Bone or something like that some some place with a lot of bones. Um, cool. And then I was looking on Google and it looks like I can just cut across uh, through. Kentucky into Lexington rather than I normally go home by going north into Indianapolis and down through a place called Terry Hout or Hout or something like that. Um, instead, I'm going to go through Lexington straight into St. Louis. Hmm. So anyways, not that anybody cares, <laughs> but uh, this guy whose question I'm answering, I'll be driving through Lexington. Let me know if you want to grab a cup of coffee or something. But I will be driving through Lexington uh, on Sunday the 12th. Not Lexington, Louisville. Louisville. Uh, wait, minute. I'm supposed to say Louisville? No, I think it's supposed it's, to muffle it. The first one's good enough as long as you don't say Louisville like Colorado. Louisville, right? Yeah. Like Colorado says Louisville. Yeah. Um, all right. Anyways, he is from Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, he said, if I heard Chris correctly, mm. he said, and this is about the five-year rule, folks, on Roth IRAs. This seems to mm-hmm. rear its ugly head every now and then. Mm-hmm. If Apparently in February, we were talking about it because he said, if I heard Chris correctly, he said that the five-year clock does not impact subsequent withdrawals of a Roth conversion after 59 and a half. I believe Chris's exact words were, the impact will be nada, zilch. Okay, then he continues, however... I believe the five-year rule does impact Roth conversions. Although the amount converted may be withdrawn tax-free, the earnings on each individual conversion must pass the five-year rule. I have converted 242000 My current value is 257000 If I withdrew it all today, I would still have to pay tax on fifteen. If I am incorrect, and it, it will not affect my plans, since I don't intend to withdraw the money and use it until after 2040. But I think this is going to impact your listeners. So let's go through this once again, because Chris mm-hmm. was correct, and people kind of get confused on this. Yeah. So the five-year rule. Well, Before, the five-year rules, because there's multiples, rules, and that's what's two. so confusing is there's two of them two. that do very different things. So, And they often get conflated together. Yeah. But let's go through this. Before we can really talk, folks, about the five-year rules, plural, because there are two of them, let's look at the ultimate goal of a Roth IRA. That is to get money out of it tax-free. 
You can only put after-tax dollars into it. We all know that. You can't put money in a Roth and deduct it. You want to do that. That's a HSA. HSA has the trifecta. You deduct the money going into an HSA. You can take it out tax-free if used for health care. And the third benefit, if it's funded through an employer HSA directly from your paycheck, you don't have to pay Social Security and Medicare on the dollars either. So it's a trifecta on HSAs. Roths don't have that. You can only put after-tax dollars in. But the aim is to get your money out tax-free. That's called a qualified withdrawal. And it's where the first five-year rule comes into play. So what's a qualified withdrawal? Which also is called, if people are looking it up, distribution too. So that's interchangeable in this context. Yes, thank you for, for clarifying that. Qualified withdrawal or qualified distribution, as Chris says. It's a two-prong test. The first prong, folks, your Roth must be five years old. Yep. The Roth itself, just the Roth, and not even the Roth that you might have been converting into, right. just a Roth. And to go even further, it doesn't even have to still be opened. What the rule simply means is that you must have been participating in the Roth program, if you will, for at least five years. Roths first came out, I think, in 98. I opened mine the first year they came out. I believe it was 98. I don't have that Roth anymore. But I could open a brand new Roth tomorrow, and it would instantly be five years old. Mm -hmm. Why I, yours truly, have been participating in the Roth program for five years. I've been doing it since 98. Mm -hmm. Now, we've often said you don't even have to put any money in, but someone did point out no one's going to open a Roth unless you put money in. And then I think one of the minions from the Ed Slot group told me when I mentioned that once, no, you actually do have to physically make a deposit. There's no um, dollar amount. They don't say, oh, you must put the $1,000 in or or the the annual contribution. No rule like that. But I believe one of the minions told me you actually have to put something in. Irrespective if you put a dollar, no one's going to open one for a dollar. But uh, I think Vanguard might open some for as little as $50 or $100, or I know some custodians do. But the point is, folks, you just open a Roth. Five years later, you are considered to have a five-year-old Roth. Even if you open that Roth, put the initial contribution in, don't put another red cent in. Even if you open that Roth, put a contribution in the following year, you close it. Five years from opening your first Roth, you are considered to have a five-year-old Roth. So I'm not sure in what context, because this was recorded in February, but the first five-year rule is satisfied just the way I described. And it applies to the two-pronged test for doing a qualified distribution. In other words, taking the growth out of your Roth out tax-free. Because everybody knows the money you put in, Chris, can what? Always come out. No taxes, no penalties at any time. 
anytime. Chris is 100% correct. The money you can put in, the money you put in, can come out with no taxes, no penalties at any time. The growth, the Roth must be at least five years old, as I explained, and not that Roth. Any participation in a Roth. Then the second prong. And this is what sometimes confuses the second five-year rule, which we'll get into in a minute. The second prong for a qualified distribution, you must be one of the four, either A, over 59 and a half, not the year you turn 59 and a half, actually past 59 and a half, at least one day past your 59th and a half birthday. Actually, so I think are, I think on the day you do count because I think on it's it's on or after the fifty ninth fifty nine and a half date, but you'd be safer to do it the day after. <laughs> I I won't dispute it. Day after, yeah. day of, yeah, right? Fifty nine and a half, right. not the year of, but actually after. That confuses mm-hmm. people with the yep. age fifty five exemption because that's in the year you turn fifty five, as opposed to actually being fifty five. But the 59 and a half, you actually have to pass 59 and a half or reach it, as Chris said. So 59 and a half, dead, disabled, or buying a first time home. And if you're buying a first time home, you're limited to taking out $10,000 of interest or growth inside your Roth tax free. And a first-time home is considered any home you bought if you hadn't owned a home for the previous two years. They'll consider it a first-time home. But it's a one-and-done. You can't keep doing it all the time. It's a lifetime limit. Correct. So that's the two-pronged test to get your growth out tax-free. Roth is five years old, and you're over 59 and a half. You're dead, which doesn't help you, but it's your beneficiaries. You're dead. You're disabled, or you're buying a first-time home. Yep. The second one, which causes all the confusion, was really thrown in there to prevent the gaming of the system. And what do I mean by that? Because the money you put into a Roth can come out at any time for any reason, no taxes, no penalties, The government wanted to prevent someone who has an IRA and is going to take a distribution from it before 59 and a half. So they could be in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, up to 59 and a half. And they're going to take an early distribution from it and do something with it that has nothing to do with retirement. They're going to go buy a new car. They're going to go buy a couch. I always mention a couch because I remember years and years and years ago when I first started doing this, folks, someone came into my office and wanted to take $3,000 out of their IRA to buy a couch. I just thought it was the silliest thing. But you can take money out of your IRA at any time for any reason, but you will pay taxes and you might pay a penalty. So what they were trying to cut down on, they being the the Congress and the government, they didn't want people with an IRA to say, well, wait a minute. If I take 3000 out of my IRA at age 40 to go buy a couch, I'm going to have to pay a $300 penalty. Let me convert this 3000 into a Roth. I'll pay the same taxes. Whether I took it out or converted it, I still have to declare 3000 as taxes. 
But because money I put into a Roth can come out at any time, any reason, no taxes, no penalties, I can avoid the 10% early withdrawal penalty. Mm-hmm. So the government foresaw that happening, and it would have happened. Mm-hmm. So they said, hey, if you do a conversion, each conversion must be held for five years. And if you don't and you take it out during that five-year time frame, you will pay a 10% penalty if you're younger than 59 and a half. Right. However, folks, that penalty goes the way of the dodo bird when you reach 59 and a half. Right. So you could be, I'm 60 now. I'm not proud of that. I wish I wasn't. Well, I am proud of it. I'm alive. I should have been dead, as everybody knows, but I'm not. I'm alive. So I'm kind of happy I'm 60. But at the same time, I'm bumming I'm 60. However, if I converted an IRA into a Roth on Monday, I could withdraw those dollars on Tuesday and not pay a 10% penalty. Why? I'm over 59 and a half. Right. And I think it was in those two contexts Chris was saying nada and zilch. Do you agree? Totally agree. The only time there would be any implications there is if somehow you did a conversion and you you didn't reach that first test to make qualified distribution, and therefore you would you know not be able to take out growth um, tax free. So there could be a taxable element at that point. But the assumption is made most people, if they're doing a conversion of have had a Roth, likely they've decided to, you know, open one five years ago or more, and they don't have to worry about that first part. But a lot of people confuse the five-year uh, rule on conversions to be more broadly affecting taxability and penalty rather than just the 10% penalty. It's just about the 10% penalty. It's the other rule that Jim went over first that determines tax-free withdrawals of earnings. The conversion rule is just to deal with that 10% penalty, which we all know goes away for everyone, no matter what, at 59 and a half. So I stand by my statement back from last February that if you did a conversion and uh, it wasn't yet five years old, if you got over 59 and a half, you would not pay any penalty. And you shouldn't pay any taxes on on the distribution, as long as um, you know you qualify for tax free growth coming out. Now, you know, I, there are a few people maybe that that got the the message late in life about the beauty of Roths, <laughs> and maybe don't have one that's five years old, and then there could be some timing issues there. But uh, you know, for most people. They don't need to worry about the five-year conversion rule once they get to 59 and a half because the penalty goes away for everyone. Okay. Let's see if we can get another question answered. Um, he gives a hint. I think you're going to get this one because we've had another similar hint to this. Uh, this came in in September, so not nearly as old as the February one. I am from the state where we use both our hands to identify the hometown we are from. Mine would be my left hand and fifth finger. 
Uh, Michigan. Michigan, yeah. Yeah, because that we've had questions about Michigan being in the shape of a, a hand mitten. or a Don't mitten. Don't they call it a mitten? Yeah, I think so. So that's that's why I concluded that. I don't think we've had that exact hint before, but the whole using your hand to represent your state, I'm pretty sure just goes to Michigan. So he uh, said he is a Michigan Upper Peninsula Youper. Hmm. So he is a Youper. Remember uh, mm-hmm. Deb? I always mentioned Deb, the, the woman I dated. You met Deb, Deb yeah. and her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a Youper as well from Ishpeme, Michigan. I always remembered that yeah. town, yeah. just Ishpeme. And just to clarify, Jim didn't date her while he she was married. No, just no. throwing she, that out there. She she got married after we dated. That was that was uh, an important clarification. Thank you. Yeah, sure. All right, this is an not an important one, but I think now is kind of a time to to mention something like this. So here's his question: I retired in 2021 at age 61 and accomplished my goal of large Roth conversions in 2022. It was challenging, a year of learning about setting up an IRS account and making scheduled tax payments and simplifying my position and listening to several retirement podcast shows. My problem is I was having such fun in my first full go-go year of retirement and I got remarried in 2023, I forgot to do conversions this year. 2023, he's talking, Chris. Hmm. I planned on doing a lot less converting this year, but I'd still like to do something. But I'm confused about Roths and the tax requirements. Mm, For estimated tax withholding. Can I make a single small conversion near the end of the year and make a single direct IRS tax payment that same day? Mm -hmm. I just listened to your show explaining about not waiting too long at the end of the year because custodians are so busy, conversions could take weeks. I'm certainly not trying to time the market, but I want to avoid a penalty. I think he means a tax underpayment penalty, Chris, Mm -hmm. because I don't know what other payment penalty you'd be talking about. Do I need to fill out a form in order to do a conversion? He's already done conversion, so I figure he would know that answer. Some custodians might require a form. Other custodians might allow you to do it right online mm-hmm. without a form. I think it's going to come down to your custodian's uh, preference. <laughs> I'm going to keep conversion small so I don't have to worry about Irma at age 65 and to keep our married joint income low. My husband gets both a discount on property taxes and also very expensive medications due to low income since our assets aren't counted. So what she's saying there, Mm -hmm. folks, is she's still going to try to do conversions, Mm -hmm. but she needs to keep her conversion amounts low because of a discount on property taxes, apparently, that she's eligible for in Michigan that I'm gathering from her email, folks, is income-related, as well as help spending uh, on very expensive medication. As long as their income is low, I'm guessing that her husband is not on 
uh, Medicare either yet. She's 61. Right. Well, she retired at 61 so two years ago. Yeah. So she's 63-ish. I'm guessing that they're on ACA. And again, keeping their income low allows them to qualify for a lot of ACA premium tax credits and also to get some expensive medication at relatively low cost. We've talked about that before. Talk about a loophole. The government doesn't look at your assets for ACA. They just look at income. So people of means who could theoretically afford to pay for health care or pay for medications, and I'm not saying that these people fall into that boat, but the way the law is written, and there's nothing nefarious about it, the government, if they didn't want you to do it, they wouldn't have written the law this way. People with money, as long as they control how that money is realized, maybe by accessing money in a bank that's already been taxed or selling uh, the basis of investments and identifying the the lowest cost shares, uh, excuse me, the highest cost shares, lowest gain shares uh, to, to realize, they can manipulate their money even though they have theoretically, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of assets, and still get ACA. And that's kind of what she's in. That's what she's battling here. But I'm also gathering, folks, she doesn't know how much she can convert. There's just too much unknown. So she says, can you please explain how to make a single or even multiple Roth conversions for those that don't plan too far ahead of time for taxes? So I'm a little confused on what she's asking, so I'm going to provide a little bit of information that she can mm-hmm. take with it. Hopefully it's answering what she's trying to ask. If you do a Roth conversion, we just spoke about this recently with a CPA mm-hmm. who was not only trying to do a Roth conversion for an elderly client of theirs, they were trying to direct a certain amount of it, 25% to the IRS in taxes at the same time, and also have it count as their RMD. Very interesting case if you want to go back and listen to previous shows. She's not trying to handle an RMD, folks. She's just saying, hey, if I convert, I'm under the impression, Chris, she's asking, could I send some or all of those dollars at the same time to the IRS as withholding? The answer to that, yes. Mm -hmm. When you do a conversion, you can specify, usually as a percentage of the conversion, not necessarily a dollar amount, but perhaps some custodians will allow you to specify a dollar amount. But you can specify up to 100%. Now, you might say, why would I do a conversion and send 100%? Nothing's going into the Roth. You at that point would most likely do a withdrawal. I'll concede that. But you could send theoretically 100% of a withdrawal or maybe even 100% of a conversion and put nothing in the actual Roth to the IRS. And what makes this interesting, she's talking about funding it, folks, in the fourth quarter of this year. But what does the IRS consider, Chris, on money that comes to them directly from an IRA? And we talk about this strategy every year around this time. So first, the taxes being sent in the same quarter the income is recognized gets her out of it. But more broadly, what Jim's referring to is actually where if you find yourself towards the end of the year under withheld, uh, one 
I don't know if I'd call it a loophole, but one technique that you could use is actually do a distribution from your IRA and ask the uh, custodian to send money direct as a withholding to the IRS. And the IRS will consider that withholding to have been received evenly throughout the year. Uh, those of you who know about uh, underpayment penalties know that they look at your withholdings on a quarterly basis versus your income. And if you don't have withholding done, they're not they're not looking at it as one year's worth and they don't care when during the year the money gets sent to them. They actually want you to be sending in the money as you earn it. And sometimes people can get caught having under withheld. And this is one technique to get kind of get caught up because even though you're making the distribution or the withholding from the IRA uh, in the fourth quarter, they will consider that having come in throughout the year. So there's actually two reasons why in this case, she wouldn't have to worry about it. One, the income is happening and the withholding is happening in the same quarter, but more broadly, this you know this other rule actually would help her if she is underwithheld due to other income throughout the year. Right, and that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to get to, and I think mm-hmm. that's what you covered. Yeah, and hopefully she understands that. So anyone can use this strategy as you start doing year-end tax planning, and people should every fall do year-end tax planning. You should really, especially if you are in the distribution phase of retirement, you should be looking at last year's tax return, pull up last year's tax return, get it in front of you, and then look at all the sources of income you had, start estimating this year what your income will be based on last year's sources, Look at your interest, your dividends, your consulting income, your RMDs, whatever contributed to your income last year. Start trying to estimate this year's. And you only have a couple of months that you have to guess on, November and December. You should know what you earned for the first 10 months so far, January through October. So you would make a couple of projections and estimates And then you can start to see, wow, did I have enough taxes withheld? Did I under withhold? If you under withheld, it's hard to make up for the first, second or third quarter because you missed them. So you take the money out of your IRA and you can send the entire, you're not going to do it as a conversion. You'll do it as a withdrawal. You could send the entire amount to the IRS as a withholding and they will have considered it to have been received throughout the year. And it's one way to help you overcome the underpayment penalty. And that can crop up when doing these year-end tax planning strategies. We call it a withdrawal analysis because we're trying to decide. We're going to look at everything that you've withdrawn from your assets and been spending. Remember, that's the whole idea of retirement. You're going to start consuming So you're going to be taking withdrawals and you're going to have some income sources, Social Security for some of you, pension, income annuity, consulting income, interest, dividends, any number of ways, the royalties that you're going to be making money in retirement. You start looking at all of it. And one of the things you should be doing is estimating if there is an under tax payment penalty that's going to be owed. And if there is, quick way of fixing it. Do a withdrawal, send it all to the IRS. They'll consider it received throughout the year. That's really where I wanted to go with this. 
I think next week we'll share our little strategy that we've always talked about, the 60-day rollover Roth conversion. Uh, if not next week, we might, we'll might we do it sometime in November because it's definitely another strategy. When people are unsure like she is, how much can I convert? Because remember, folks, you cannot do a recharacterization where you used to be able to convert it. We used to jokingly say, Chris, convert it all. I don't care. You got a million dollar IRA, convert it all. I don't care. You're not going to pay taxes on it because what we're going to do next year when you do your taxes and figure out how much to really convert to optimize your tax situation will recharacterize everything else and you won't have to pay taxes on it. We would purposefully overfill via a conversion and then figure it all out. My analogy was taking a cup of flour, scooping it into the the flour bag, taking a cup, a measuring cup, scoop it into the flour bag, purposefully overflow that cup. And then you take that butter knife and scrape it across the top. And that's how you get a cup of flour. We used to do that with tax planning uh, for Roth conversions. Just convert it all. We'll figure it out next year. When they got rid of recharacterization, we can't do that anymore. So what we now do is we came up with a little strategy that we'll review at some point in the coming weeks, the 60-day rollover strategy, which can allow people to almost replicate what we just described. This is important for people who are trying to fly close to the sun but not melt their wings. They want to try to still get the ACA like this person does. They want to get this uh, tax credit from the state of Michigan. But they also want to get money as much as possible into a Roth. There is a strategy you might want to consider. And then we always jokingly say, don't try this at home. It's a dangerous strategy, but it could work. And we'll get into that on another show. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Well, that uh, probably brings us to the end of today's show. Got in five good questions. And uh, again, thanks for joining me so remotely from Loveland, Ohio, don't spend a lot of time on this because we need to wrap up, but did you find the castle yet? No, what? no, you, you asked me that earlier today as well. Well, you didn't Google it while we were doing this, while I was talking? <laughs> no, okay. and I didn't run out while you were talking. Okay. So. <laughs> just wanted to make sure, just wanted to check one last time because I'm going to feel bad if you leave and go to Louisville. Um, hopefully, without... hopefully next week. Okay. I, I, am, I did have dinner with a gentleman named Ken that I met in a hiking group, and uh, he... And I and his wife and Rachel went out to dinner one night, and then he invited me over. His wife is gone for a week. So he says, why don't you go over to my house? And I did last night, met his son, and had some dinner. Um, and I asked him about the castle. And he's kind of rolled his eyes. He's like, it's, it's nothing special. I said, well, I haven't seen it. I didn't even know Loveland had a castle. So he told me about where it is, and mm. I'm going to go. I will take a selfie, Chris, of me in front of the castle uh, fighting off the Black Knight. And I will have okay. it posted in next week's next month's newsletter. Okay, that sounds good. Well, thanks, uh, thanks everybody for listening. If you want to send in your own questions for the show, do that by sending Jim an email directly. Jim at jimhelps dot com is the email address. Uh, put in the subject line a question for the podcast or suggestion for the podcast or something with the word podcast in it because I think that's the the word he searches on when he digs these up. But. Um, uh, we really enjoy your questions. We try to get to as many as possible, although not possible to do all of them that we get, but we'll do our best. And we, uh, like I said, really appreciate everybody listening. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show.
You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.